Welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Evan Lorenz, host pro tem, filling in for Jim Grant, who has temporarily lost his voice. Uh, joining me today are Henry French at the controls and Harrison Waddell, my colleague. We'll also be uh, joined with Brent Donnelly, who has been trading currency since 1995 and uh, writing about macro since 2004. He is uh, currently president of Spectrum Markets. Brent is also an author of uh, multiple books, including Alpha Trader and Art of the Currency Trading. He writes a widely read and highly respected macro and FX daily called AM FX. And over the course of his career, he has been a market maker, a trader, and a senior manager at some of the top banks in foreign exchange, including HSBC and Nomura. Brent, welcome to Grant's Current Yield. Hi, Evan. Thanks very much for having me. You know, Brent, the first time I actually read uh, your work was actually through a cartoon in which you kindly ranked publications based off of how highbrow or lowbrow they are and when they were first uh, created. And you ranked Grant's fairly highly. Uh, well, the funny thing about that is that my preference in in the world, in almost everything, like whether it's restaurants or art or whatever, are things that are are at the intersection of highbrow and lowbrow. And without knowing Jim, which I know him a little bit now, but without knowing Jim, I I viewed him as as highbrow. But then when you actually get to know him, he's got some some sneaky little lowbrow jokes and and sneaky lowbrow kind of uh, comments and humor, which I appreciate. So uh, I, but I do feel like the product that you guys produce is very intellectually stimulating and uh, and very highbrow. Well, thank you. And knowing Jim, he's both into Victorian literature and also the New York Post. Right, right, exactly. Before we begin, Brent, um, if uh, listeners want to find more of your work, where should they go to? Sure. If anyone goes to spectramarkets.com, everything is there. There's links to my books, uh, to my daily macro letter, and everything else that we do. So it's all right there, spectramarkets.com. Well, Brent, I know that FX is kind of like your uh, bailiwick, but I'd like to ask you about a couple other markets first. So gold just hit an all-time high as we're recording, which usually indicates that people are worried about inflation, about debasement, about things like that. But at the same time, we're seeing energy prices just completely slump and sell off, which pretty much tells you the opposite. What do you make of the commodity markets and what are commodities telling us today? Right. So there's this interesting situation now, I think, where a lot of money came out of the bond market and some of it went into T-bills. A lot of it went into T-bills. And so now some of it's looking for a home as yields have stopped going up and people are a little bit less worried about recession, whether or not that's correct. And people are a lot less worried about exploding yields and rates exploding higher or some kind of bond market crisis. So as that money comes back into the market, then people are then also looking forward to an election and probably more fiscal and a more dovish Fed and trying to find places to put their money that will capitalize on that. And depending on what generation you're from, that often means gold or Bitcoin. Um, so it, there's an interesting uh, demographic split. So anyone from sort of 22 to 36 is buying Bitcoin and anyone over 50 is buying gold. And I don't know where that leaves Gen X, probably buying NASDAQ because that's what went up in when when we were kids. So, but then in contrast, oil, I think part the big part of oil is just that it's a trade that people have tried so many times and every catalyst has come true. You had like raging inflation, fiscal supply chains, a war in Russia, a war in, in the Middle East. You kind of had everything that you could have ever dreamed of as an oil bull. And yet here we are. Um, I remember the Sunday after Russia went into Ukraine. Sunday night, we traded at 130. And here we are almost half of that price. So I think part of it is that 
there's a Pavlovian aspect to to markets always. And once you touch the stove a couple of times, you're just not going to touch the stove the third time. Whereas things that like, I mean, Bitcoin is the most extreme example in the other direction where just the very fact that it's going up, it's kind of a Veblen good where the more expensive it gets, the more people want it. So I, I th- and then I feel like gold is somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think it all kind of makes sense from, from a behavioral or like psychological perspective. And the one thing I will say about gold is as someone that's like my sort of area of focus very often is correlation and, and what is one market telling me about the other market. And so I use a lot of that in currency trading, like what's copper telling me about the Australian dollar, for example, and gold is one I not even one of gold is the most difficult thing to model. Like sometimes it's real rates that are driving it. Sometimes it's geopolitics, though that is always tends to be very temporary. People claim it's an inflation hedge because of the sample size of of what happened in the 80s, which to me is like a single sample, like a sample size of one. Um, so I think it's some combination of how much money is in the system and how much people trust institutions. That seems to be like, if you can combine those two variables somehow in a model, I think that's the best explanation of gold. And right now there's still a decent amount of money sloshing around and people definitely do not trust institutions. And that's also part of why Bitcoin is, is doing well. I I like that you framed it as people who uh, are viewing kind of the hard versus soft landing debate, whether we're going to fall into a recession or whether growth is going to continue being strong. And in one side, people point out that the yield curve's inverted. And when um, long bonds have out-yielded, you know, bills, um, that's been an indicator fairly reliably for the last eight uh, times it's happened that a recession's on the the books. At the same time, third quarter GDP came in at 5.2%, which excluding kind of the post-COVID bounce back is the strongest growth rate we've seen on a quarterly um, basis since 2014. Um, In one of your recent notes, though, you pointed out that there are more possibilities than just boom and bust, uh, including stagnation. Um, and I thought you laid out a kind of interesting case for it. Could you, could you walk us through why investors on both camps might be disappointed next year? Sure. So if you think about where we were from 2010 to, or 2011 to 2019, it was secular stagnation, kind of low inflation, somewhat low growth, somewhat disappointing growth, low yields. And the main drivers at the time, if you read the research, was generally technology slash productivity and demographics. Those are the big drivers. And if you overlay just like percentage growth in working force population over inflation over like a 500 year span, it's usually a pretty good fit. Like population growth has a lot to do with inflation um, and and overall GDP growth. So now we kind of had this hard break, like a reset of all the economic thinking after COVID. And then we had, so we had fiscal and we had broken supply chains, which triggered a massive inflation. And then quite a lot of wage growth as well. And subsequent to that, then the feeling was the sugar rush from fiscal will wear off. And everyone was so generally, the consensus was recession in 2023. And then as we didn't get that, then there's like a higher for longer kind of group of people that expect inflation will be sticky, wage growth is strong. You know, you see the UAW and all those those things uh, happening. But then I think there's this strong gravitational pull back towards that 2011-2019 scenario where you have a downward pull on inflation that comes from very bad demographics. And the demographics are getting worse now, not better. 
and then a lot of technological innovation that that leads to some productivity in certain areas like i think you can argue ai could be could lead to a lot of productivity it it does for me um uh, whether that's good for the stocks or not we can talk about after so i think the the big the base case to me should be a return to something similar to what we had before covid as most of the forces that were driving the insanity in 21 22 and and most of 23 most of those forces are dissipating and the structural forces like technology and demographics are still dominant. So to me the base case should be that we go to something not actual st secular stagnation but something that's like where the truth is in the middle but closer to secular stagnation. So instead of ranging like 1 2 on CPI like between 1% and 2%, maybe the the baseline now is a little higher like 1.6 2.6 or something like that. But I think with supply supply chains fixed and fiscal still running hot but not super hot, we can settle back in there. And then that's not like the worst world to live in because I think most people would agree that zero rates was bad. It triggers a lot of capital misallocation and just a lot of bad things. Um, it doesn't reward savers. It rewards unnecessary risk. It, it rewards unprofitable VC and, and all that. And it also limits uh, people who observe interest rates uh, from writing about much. Right, right. The grants interest rate observer would just have to be the grants equity observer or something like that, because <laughs> there's no rates to observe. Um, so I see that as the base case. And like the way I always think about things, because my time horizon trading wise is, is shorter. It's not like I don't put trades on for one year. Um, so I'm always thinking in terms of probabilities. And to me, the base case should be some kind of drop back to a little bit better than secular stagnation and then leaving the door open for like recession and i don't know the the subsequent takeoff back up to six percent inflation that branch on the tree just doesn't really speak to me that much like people talk about there are some good arguments like wage growth is sticky and reshoring and all that but like particularly with reshoring mexico's share of of U.S. exports has been rising since 2011. China peaked in 2016. Mexican labor has been cheaper than Chinese labor since 2012. So like reshoring isn't as new as as people make it out to be. Um, so but I thought it was interesting when I was writing about it because I feel like that's a base case. And yet I feel like most observers see one of the ends of the barbell as as the base case. And I see the middle. It'd be rather fitting if both bulls and bears were disappointed. <laughs> that tends to be how markets work. Yeah. Your, your bread and butter is currencies. Um, if I look at the dollar index, it's come off a little bit from its highs, but it's still elevated relative to where it kind of sat in like the last decade. What's your view on the dollar? Man, it's hard work being bearish dollar. So the one thing, so there's, there's a few different time horizons, like one time horizon that I just throw out is the dollar doom idea of like large deficits are bad for the dollar and we're going to have a day of reckoning. Sure, obviously that's possible, but literally since the day I started, that has been a popular narrative that gets a lot of clicks or or views or whatever the, the metric was, eyeballs in the 90s. Um, you know, the debt clock went up in Times Square in, in 1990. There's books in the 60s and 70s about the the debt reckoning. So I just don't feel like that that's a good framework at all for for fx or for the dollar so the the sort of de-dollarization theme that so, so so what is what is the framework that you use for the dollar like how do you make sense of like the moves in like you know where the buck is relative to the euro the renminbi other currencies if, if that's not a useful metric so the best framework is relative growth 
except um, I'm sure you're familiar with the dollar smile. So I think the dollar smile is the best framework. Uh, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you explain what the dollar smile sure, is? Sure, sure. So when the U.S. is doing very well, U.S. yields tend to go up and the U.S. equity market and innovation, you know, megatech tends to do well. And so that brings a lot of money to the U.S. So that's what we saw in 21 and 22 mostly. When the world is in a major recession, then the U.S. serves as a flight to safety uh, safe haven. So people buy U.S. treasuries and they buy U.S. dollars. And that's what we saw in 2008. So that's if you picture a smile, those are the two ends of the smile, which is very strong uh, U.S. growth or very weak U.S. growth, which usually is accompanied by very weak global growth. And then in the middle, what you have is like medium to slightly weak U.S. growth and okay or excellent growth around the world. So 2017 was a good example of that. We had synchronized growth in almost every, it was actually one of the most synchronized periods where every single country in the world was was doing okay. And so in that environment, you'll see the dollar sell off because money is flowing out of the US and it sees opportunities in cheap European stocks or, or emerging markets generally um, attract a lot of money. Uh, but but just right now, if we if you're expecting kind of mediocre growth from the U.S. and just looking around the world right now, parts of Europe are in recession. Um, Asia appears to be slowing. What happens when we have mediocre growth in the U.S. and mediocre growth around the world? Well, that's a tougher one. Um, and then it, it comes down a lot more to starting points. So that's part of why the dollar's weakened now is that when the dollar's extremely strong and everything's like in the kind of weak zone, then it matters where you're starting from. So having the dollar rally so much on mostly on what was going on in yields. So then when everything kind of slows down, the the rampant demand for dollars slows down, but it's it doesn't become a dollar bearish narrative, really. It's more like, okay, the dollar overshot and now it's back to where it should be. So if my base case, which is sort of like grinding, okay, not too bad, um, that if that comes true, then the dollar should should be a low volatility but weaker. So lower volatility but but weaker dollar. And then if the the negative outlooks are correct, like if Europe gets worse. So one thing I, I want to point out too about like U.S. recession calls is that if there's going to be something really bad, generally it comes from a starting point where there's a lot of leverage. And all the leverage is not in the U.S. It's in Canada, Canada housing. It's in in UK, New Zealand, almost all, every other country, to be honest, like in developed markets, has so much more leverage and such a, a much more precarious consumer than the U.S. So I think the evidence will show up in those countries way before the U.S. And the other thing, too, is that with, with the yield curve, I feel like the yield curve signal has cost more money than it's made for people simply because it doesn't have a timing element to it. So like when the when it inverted in, in 06, I mean, yes, it was correct and 08 happened, but more people got shoulder tapped from 06 to 08 trying to play that than, than actually survived that, the people that were looking at the yield curve. For listeners who aren't familiar with that, um, the yield curve inverted in late 05 through 06. The recession didn't start until December of 2007. But for anybody who traded in 2007, it was the heyday of private equity, the market booming. That's when we saw deals like TXU and uh, Harris signed. 
it, it was an absolutely insane time where stocks could just gap up. While at the same time, we saw HSBC take large write downs on its subprime book. We saw Bear Stearns have a couple of failed hedge funds. And we saw basically structured finance starting to collapse. It was a very perverse time to actually trade through. Right. 07 was a really tough year for me as well, because I was in this in that same camp of like, wow, there's so much writing on the wall here. And then in FX, there was a bubble in in carry. So all these ETFs were launching and carry people were buying carry and then selling options to boost the carry on the carry that they already had. And it, it just seemed so obvious that this thing was going to collapse. And it did collapse eventually. But 07 was a really bad year for me because I it seemed so obvious to I mean, to a lot of people. And that really just goes to timing is is just so important in in, in trading anyways, because I'm in trading. Um, and you can have the right view and lose money. It's it's very easy to be correct and lose money in trading. And you really need some kind of of radar or technical instrument or, or different ways of establishing the timing because it's the same thing now where you do feel like there's a little bit of an inevitability to some kind of recession. But the whether it happens in 24 or 25 is is TBD. And now a quick message from our sponsor. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation. And they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. And working with SRS Aquium means that you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize how their deals get done. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. So in late, I think it was either late 07 or very, very early 08, Gazelle Bunchen, seeing that the dollar was falling, uh, demanded to be paid in euros. <laughs> and that was almost like, I think, the top in the euro. And after that, the euro dramatically underperformed. In the realm that you deal in, in currencies, what is the trade that makes sense now, but will be obviously wrong in retrospect going forward? So, yeah, that I love that anecdotal stuff. Another thing, too, is generally in rap videos, when people make it rain, it's with U.S. dollars. And uh, there was a Jay-Z video right at that same time where he used he was using hundred euro notes. It's similar. <laughs> it's similar to whatever the Super Bowl ads are. Um, those are <laughs> are very big red flags for companies that have way too much money to burn because they are are making it rain. Uh, Super Bowl ads wise. In terms of FX trades, I I think the most crowded trade that will end up being wrong in in twenty twenty four is the yen trade because. It's become a very the the carry is good in dollar yen. Like you make a lot more money being long dollars than you do uh, have to pay being short yen. But it's been kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. And one thing that I've found uh, quantitatively is that if the sharp of of anything 
uh, sharp being the risk adjusted return of an asset. If the sharp of anything is too good for too long, it tends to get crowded. And that's actually a good metric that can be better than normal positioning indicators. So are, are you bullish the yen or bearish? Because right now I, I've seen both camps. The, the yen has been extraordinarily weak because the Bank of Japan is the only major central bank in the world that actually still has negative uh, yields. It's still buying uh, bonds because it, you know, tries to control yields in the in its bond market. And people are worried that once it takes its, you know, thumb off of the scale, that the yen might, you know, shoot from like 150 to maybe 100 to the dollar. Um, but at the same time, betting against the yen has been a, a pretty dang pop profitable trade this year. Right. So I'm bullish yen. And I think that there's a little bit of a red herring on the, on the BOJ or the Bank of Japan side, because People have been watching it. And when the Bank of Japan does these tiny normalization steps, because they're, they're, they still have negative rates there, and then they have a band to control the 10-year note or the 10-year yield, and they've moved that band up, which is should be a precursor to, to rate normalization in theory, then people buy the yen and they get smoked. Because to me, if you look at the magnitude of rate changes in Japan versus US, US yields just move so, so much more that in the end, the BOJ going from minus 0.1 to 0.2 and JGBs going from 0.2 to 100 basis points is just nothing compared to US 10-year yields going from five to three. So if you're looking at the differential, which is generally, I'm always like a changes versus levels kind of person um, because of my time horizon, then you look at what US yields are doing. And then there is like a small kicker from the Bank of Japan probably hiking at some point in Q1. But I think the real story is just global yields. So if you look at Euro yen or Swiss yen is the craziest one. So Swiss yen has has gone completely insane because the Swiss franc is is at its strongest point. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one thing also that has been pushed that has been keeping dollar yen up is oil because that's the biggest import for Japan. So oil oil grinding lower also is is bullish for the yen. And you're coming from a starting point where the yen is just incredibly cheap. So dollar yen was 75 in 2012 and now it's 150. So that's uh however you want to do the percentages, that's a <laughs> that's a huge move. And I think um the the trade is getting very tired, but people so so the macro has changed with yields going down and oil going down, but generally people tend to stick around in profitable trades much longer than they should. And then that's, a, I think, a big part of my edge is finding those inflection points and price just doesn't always react. So macro can move or macro can change. But a lot of people, I mean, especially CTAs, which are trend following generally, will simply just wait for the price to give them the signal. So if you can move before the price, um, gives the signal. Obviously, you have a big head start on what could be a new trend, which I, I like euro yen lower, Swiss yen lower, but also dollar yen lower. So all in all three cases, bullish yen and bearish the the respective currencies. Brent, earlier you said you have a, a focus on correlations uh, as a lens you use quite regularly at FX. We know and have seen that correlations can trend for a long time and then all of a sudden they can stop working and then... Uh, resume working once again. What are some of the correlations that uh, you see working the best right now in, in FX? I guess specifically G10FX, if that's an area you spend most of your time. Sure. I can talk about one that is and one that isn't because of this, the one that isn't, there's a lot of information in it, which I think is pretty interesting. So the the ultimate 
correlation generally in FX is interest rate differentials. So I started in 1995 and that's what people looked at in 1995. And now it's 2023 and that's still what people look, look at just generally because in G10, higher yields, not only do they attract money. So if you're a bond, you know, a bond holder that can, that can do international investing, you want to all other things being equal, you want higher yields if if volatility is not too high, which it generally isn't in, in G10 bond markets with the exception of the last couple of years. So the number one driver, but sometimes it, it isn't, but just as a general rule is always interest rate differentials. But then a really interesting one, because your point about correlations not being static is really important because if people are going to watch correlations, you can't just extrapolate that like, oh, this thing was correlated for the last 12 months and now it's going to be correlated in the future. What I always do is try to understand a little bit more deeply what the mediator is or what the, like, why does that correlation exist? So a really interesting one is the dollar versus energy prices or dollar versus oil. So most of my career up until like 2017, 2018, if oil went up, the dollar went down. And there were a lot of reasons for it. The the number one was that um, in recent years was that oil oil exporters would receive dollars and then they would diversify out of some of them. So every time oil, if oil went up 10%, they would have 10% more dollars to sell um, like Saudi and Kuwait and all that. And then there's a bunch of other reasons, like specifically, if you think about the Canadian oil producers, they're receiving dollars when when they sell their oil, but they operate in Canada, so they need Canadian they need Canadian dollars. So they receive U.S. dollars and then they sell them to fund their operations. So if oil's at fifty, they have X amount of dollars to sell. If oil's at hundred, they have two X dollars to sell. So that was the correlation, and that was like probably the most reliable correlation in FX from I would say like. 2003 to 2014 or something like that, give or take. But then with shale, and now the US is is an net energy exporter, the correlation is completely gone. And so now, if anything, sometimes when oil rallies, you see things like dollar yen rally because Japan's an, an importer of oil. And so they need to go into the market and buy dollars in order to purchase their crude. Uh, but generally, it's just more like the correlation has has gone away. But the interesting part about that is that really like this, the main regime when the dollar was weak in my lifetime was mostly when energy prices were strong because U.S. just needed to import a lot of energy. And so that triggered a lot of mechanical dollar selling. And so now what you have is by eliminating that regime, now what you have is it's just a lot harder to be short dollars because the middle of the dollar smile that I was describing before is really the only regime where the dollar sells off. And there's just all these other regimes where the dollar rallies because it's a sa- it acts as a safe haven. It essentially acts as like the ultimate offense and the ultimate defense. And you need something in between like sort of sloppy stagnation-y kind of stuff um, for, or, or a really strong story in say like a European re- rebound after the crisis you know, then you saw Euro rally a lot, but that was more because it got smoked um, due to the crisis. Generally, it I always am on the lookout for what's going to change this correlation. And most of the correlations do change, but rates versus rate differentials versus FX is, is generally almost always a, a thing. Can I ask you to speculate outside of just currencies? Because I know that you also write about stocks, commodities, and other assets. 
Um, so you've pointed out that in the last decade, at least, the dollar has been the place to be. U.S. assets have been the place to be. And it's not just been the last decade. Like if I look at this year, um, the S&P 500 is up 19%, whereas the MSCI World XUS Index is up just 9%. Um, this, this has been kind of a multi-decade uh, spate where U.S. assets and uh, the dollar have outperformed just about everything else. But now as a result, I think everyone has kind of tipped over to one side of the boat. If you actually look at the MSCI World Index, which, you know, aggregates, you know, stock markets from the world, the U.S. stocks make up a whopping 70% of it. If you look at the U.S. population, we're what, like 330 million out of a world of what, 8 billion, something like that? We're not 70% of the world. No. Um, is the biggest offsides right now just everybody piling into U.S. assets at very high valuations, and at some point does that reverse? I mean, I mean, looking at the um, the U.K., the FTSE 100 I think is valued at 9.9 .9 times trailing earnings, whereas the S&P 500 is like 20 or 20 and change. Um, is this the biggest offsides in the world right now? So the issue that I have with that, and generally, like I'm not an equity expert, but the the one issue I will say is that I've heard this so many times that it does get frustrating. Like it's, it's essentially growth versus value. So Europe is value, you know, FTSE is value and us is growth. And one thing that sometimes my clients will say is like, okay, you're bullish Euro, but like, what am I going to buy with it? Um, uh, sure. I can be bullish the currency, but, but what European assets do you really want to own? Um, and it essentially comes down to, a relative value or a cheapness argument, but then it's it's very very similar to being long value and and short growth. It's just I'm sympathetic to it because it makes sense, but then I'm averse to it because it hasn't worked. But that the thing is, it doesn't mean that it won't work in the future. I think there are ways to do it. Like for example, if you look at stocks that have traded thirty times sales through history the expected value of being long. So NVIDIA is there. It was at 40. Now it's at 30. The expected value of being long stocks that are trading at 30 times sales. Of course, it's probabilistic. Like sometimes you might make money, but generally you're not going to. So I think there's ways of doing it that don't necessarily require going all in, like all in long Europe versus short US. You can do like long equal weight and short um, mega tech in the US as another example. I guess the the other issue just kind of philosophically. So I'm Canadian, so hopefully I'm not too biased. But if you look at all the we, we won't hold it against you. <laughs> yeah, blame Canada. If you look at all the innovation going on in the world, from like fracking to technology, I guess being two of the huge ones, it's so much of it is just happening in the U.S. And so I think I'm more interested in finding pockets of innovation outside like whether that's israel or you know specific companies in europe but just buying indexes in other countries because they're cheap it just doesn't appeal to me it feels like a value trap so what i would rather do is look at valuations that are you know ex where the expected value is bad like nvidia and then look for pockets of innovation in those countries, like find find the most innovative company in the UK that's doing cool stuff, but don't buy the index. You said one of the few things that still works in FX is interest rate differentials. Uh, if I look at the US, inf inflation has moderated, growth is still high, and we're headed for an election next year. Uh, what does this portend for US interest rates and what does it mean for uh, currency trading? So on yields, I think we had kind of the, the two extremes, right? We had the Silvergate thing, where it looked like a disinflationary collapse or uh, and lending crisis was going to happen. 
And then we had this sort of convexity move where yields went above 5% on a bunch of tenors. And we got a lot of concern that things were going to go parabolic. And then I think the really interesting thing there was that the Treasury and the Fed essentially intervened, in my opinion. And well, I I know grants readers specifically, but just people in general, including me, find government intervention in markets unpalatable and and undesirable. To me, that's just like I'm pl- trying to play the game that is not the game that I wish existed. We're a big so, fan of free markets, and we'd like to see it tried somewhere. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so to me, that intervention was meaningful. And I think probably the most meaningful outcome from that will be volatility in bond markets will go down. So it's obviously pushed yields a lot lower, but again, I think that's more about the starting point of the overshoot. And there was a lot of hysteria at that point and a big bond short. So now you've probably, you probably went higher than equilibrium and that overshoot was corrected by the government intervention by changing the balance of of bills and bonds, and also by the Fed turning, which I don't really know if that was intervention or simply responding to the data. Because if you look at three-month annualized inflation in a lot of places, it's getting close to two, um, or it's below two actually in in Europe. So inflation has come down a lot. So maybe the Fed's reaction was rational and the Treasury kind of intervened. But to me, that that then leaves you with something a little bit more range-bound. It's a boring uh, forecast, but. I think we'll we'll get something a little bit more range bound. So if ten years at four four point one zero right now, I would I would think it's capped um, way below five. Like I don't think we go back above four and a half. But then I don't think we really go down all that much either because there is some stickiness to wage inflation and just to inflation in general. Um, although it's coming down very fast, so I think the risks are lower yields. If if I had to think about the distribution. But my base case is that yields are probably pretty close to here a year from now. Like maybe they're at 375 from the current 410 level. Any day now, we'll start seeing in our inboxes the top trends, themes of 2024 reports that the sell side pushes out. Yep. Um, in that light, I won't ask you to to you know give us all of 2024, but are what are some of the top themes, trends that you're focused on? Let's say going into year end and and early next year. Well, I think the market will keep pushing the rate cut story because it feels pretty credible to me. Like it, this feels a lot like 2018, 2019, where you had the different levels, obviously, but you had the overshoot in yields and the Fed like doing their best to stay as hawkish as possible. And you know, Powell said we're a long way from neutral in, in October 2018. And then once they turn the turn, the market usually underestimates the aggressiveness of that turn. So I think the market will keep the same way that we, the, the market was in disbelief all the way up on yields and, and underpriced the rate hike cycle. I think the market will now push towards more rate cuts. And I think that will be happening in still a somewhat benign environment where like Europe's sucking wind, but it's not catastrophic. Same thing with Canada. Same thing with a lot of places where it's like, it's not great, but it's not horrible. Um, I think that, so that's a good forecast for Q1. Not great, but not horrible. Um, so yields down, like say 10 year down to 375. Um, but in a world where things are still kind of okay. So to me, that probably means that we'll we'll see some dollar weakness in in from now until Q1 and specifically centered on, on dollar yen. 
And then some countries where there's bigger problems starting to brew, like Canada, I think those currencies will will underperform, even though the dollar's weak, you'll see Canada actually underperform the U.S. And just given that it's also vacation season and Americans are looking to travel abroad, where do you think we're going to get the biggest bang for a spending buck because of those other currencies falling? Is it the uh, Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar? Would be a good place, prospectively, to find, um, I guess, a cheap vacation or cheap assets next year? Uh, well, I actually was just in Canada, and it's the first time in a long time, I'm not sure how long, that it actually felt pretty cheap because the currency is weak. Um, like, relatively speaking, most of my lifetime, Dollar Canada has been between 1.0 and 1.4. So to, to, for it to be at 136 right now and, um, and for everything to be okay, like, you know, the U.S. economy is still doing okay and Canadians doing okay. When you go there, things feel relatively cheap. So I, I would say Canada. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff to do there. You can drive depending on where you live. So, you know, I'll give a little shout out to the home country. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to discuss? No, I think we covered all the big points. Um, I, the one thing I would say is that I think an important lesson from this year is to be flexible and not rely too much on priors because I feel like this year I have the, the, the um, luxury of low switching costs. Like I can change my mind pretty easily and, and nobody will really care because I'm not providing two-year forecasts for anything. But I think what this year showed was that the un, the unknowable is really the base case because we've never really been through a cycle like this. And no one, no one understands, like when you have non-farm payrolls beating the median estimate 14 times in a row, that, that just shows that people just don't have a model for how this economy works. So I think keeping an open mind and, and keeping cash reserves and and staying nimble is really the best way to go into 2024, not, not a big hardcore macro view. Brent, thank you once again for joining us. This was Grant's Current Yield. All right. Thank you very much, Evan. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.